This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. It is hard for me to find the words to describe just how honoured I am to be entrusted by our membership of the SNP to be the party's next leader and to be on the cusp of being our country's next First Minister. Uh, I am not just humbled of that, I most certainly am. I also feel like the luckiest man in the world. Hello listeners and welcome to the Enemy Within podcast. For just the third time in 16 years, Scotland has a new First Minister. Hamza Youssef will be sworn in today after winning the leadership of the SNP. He won by a narrow margin receiving 52% of votes cast compared to 48% for Kate Forbes in the second round of voting after Ash Reagan's votes were redistributed. Hamza becomes the youngest First Minister in Scottish history, the first leader from an ethnic minority background, and he inherits a divided party with many issues to address. Hamza Youssef faces a cost-of-living crisis, a crumbling Scottish infrastructure in need of reform, and a new crisis in healthcare as shocking figures from the ONS last week showed that Scottish constituencies are among those with the lowest life expectancy in Britain. Babies born in the wealthiest parts of London will live for a full 12 years longer than a baby born in Glasgow on average. Internally, Hamza Youssef also faces challenges. He'll have to navigate the fallout from the forced resignation of party CEO Peter Murrell, an investigation into potential financial fraud being carried out by Police Scotland, and he needs to open up a highly centralised party governmental structure in the context of a party split down the middle. To discuss all this, I'm joined as always by my co-host James Foley, and this week we're joined by a special guest, Jonathan Shaffey, who runs the Independence Captured Substack newsletter, and he's a member of the Contra Editorial Board. Welcome Jonathan, how are you? And what's your initial reaction to the news today? To be honest, I thought at the very start of the contest that Hamza would win because Angus Robertson didn't put himself forward and therefore Hamza became the so-called establishment candidate, i.e. the candidate backed by big figures in the party, by the party apparatus and so on. Though I have to say that throughout the election campaign and throughout the, the debate, I did become less certain. And I think the result today is very, very close. When all is said and done, it's been a tight run thing. Um, so I did expect Hamza to win out in the end and probably by a slim margin as the days went on. So that's what we've ended up with. James, what are your initial takeaways? If you had told me at the beginning that this would have been the result, I would have said this is extraordinarily bad for the SNP establishment and for Hamza Yousaf specifically. It was very, very tight. And you have to remember this comes on the back of all those tens of thousands of people who have left the SNP and most often, I would probably think, on the basis of their disagreement with the Sturgeon Murrow regime at the top of the party or just with general demoralisation with the direction in which things are going. So the fact that Kate Forbes, despite the extraordinary level of endorsements for Hamza Yousaf from the party establishment, MPs, MSPs, the fact that she was in touching distance of him to me, is hardly what you would call a ringing endorsement of uh, Yousaf as a leader. And as you say, he's going to inherit an absolute plethora of interrelated problems, a crisis of governance in Scotland. 
And it'll be interesting to see whether he gets any time at all for a honeymoon period or whether he's just going to be plunged right into the depths of a crisis, as many people seem to be intimating. I don't have a set view on that, but it does seem to me that this is a very bad result, albeit that things have gone so badly during the campaign that in the end there will probably be a sense of relief amongst USAF supporters that they've actually managed to pull it through. I absolutely agree. I think there's going to be a huge amount of relief amongst Hamza's supporters and also the party bureaucracy more generally. Jonathan, what do you make of Hamza's politics? In the last few days, he's attempted to position himself to the left of Nicola Sturgeon, describing himself as a socialist, and people have lauded that in recent days. The SNP strategy for decades now has always been to pitch themselves to the left of Labour in Scotland in an attempt to win Labour's old heartlands, which they've successfully done. It looked like that strategy might be coming to an end, certainly if Kate Forbes had won, it would have meant a repositioning of the party onto the centre-right of Scottish politics. What does a victory for Hamza mean for the direction of Scottish nationalism in general and the SNP in particular? Well, let's take Kate Forbes first of all, and then we can come on to look at what Hamza's victory means. Because Kate Forbes, it should be said, not only her views on equal marriage and, and a range of social issues, not only were those views well to the right of the SNP leaderships, the outgoing SNP leaderships, um, but also of large and important sections of the membership of elected members, MPs and MSPs and so on. You might remember towards the start of the contest, uh, Mary Black wrote a, a very strong thread in terms of her opposition to Kate Forbes on the question of, of equal marriage and related matters. But she wasn't only to the right on those kinds of questions, she was also overtly right-wing when it came to economics. She was making a very hard-nosed pitch towards the corporate sector, towards big business. She sounded very much like a kind of George Osborne figure. What I think is important about this, though, is that she sounded that way, that's true, but Nicola Sturgeon governed that way, though she sounded different. So if you look at the Growth Commission, which we know all about, if you look at the kind of policies that we see around Scotland, all of the infrastructure around economic policy is farmed out to the corporate lobby. It's just that Nicola Sturgeon dressed it up in a kind of progressive veneer. And I think that's what the meaning of Hamza's victory is going to reinforce. I think we're going to see a continued farming out, as I say, to the corporate lobby when it comes to developing prospectus when it comes to governing right now. I don't think we'll see anything change around things like free ports, for example. There's a long list that we could go into where the, the Scottish government's operating principle appears to be outsourcing to private consultancy firms and so on. I think Hums is going to stick with all of that, but he's going to, to talk to the left. He's going to pitch himself as being the progressive candidate, progressive on questions of racism, social issues, LGBT rights, and so on and so forth. But when it comes to the hard economics, I don't think we're going to see any real change from the Sturgeon era. And by the way, it's worth just saying, I don't think we're going to see any change when it comes to independent strategy either. He's going to talk about things like a grassroots campaign, talk about the need for a discussion about vision rather than instruments, i.e. a referendum. But the fundamental problems that face Scottish nationalism, and in particular the SNP, remain. And I don't think that Hamza is going to, to counteract any of those problems to any significant degree. In fact, I think he's going to continue to perpetuate those built-up problems. 
Thanks very much, Johnny. We'll come on to independence uh, in a little more detail in a moment. James, first though, I just want to get your takeaway on the meaning of Hamza's victory. On the one hand, you can see it as being an endorsement of the way that the party has been run insofar as there were alternative options on the table and people have plumped for the continuity candidate. And thus, as Jonathan says, we can probably expect more of the same. On the other hand, I think almost certainly they will have been shaken by the degree to which they were challenged, particularly because after the formation of Alaba, the ejection of so many different party members out of the organisation, the party leadership would have at least thought that they had everything sewn up internally rather than the situation that might have prevailed before where there were factional fights over issues such as the Growth Commission prior to the formation of Alaba. So it shows that there's massive discontent internally. The fact that this is a candidate, remember, that, I mean, not only did they get basically no endorsements from anyone that is considered seriously inside the party, as Jonathan has said, it's also someone that is substantially to the right of mainstream opinion, but also of the vast majority of party members. Yes, the SNP always had some Tartan Tories kicking about the ranks, but they put on basically 100,000 new members after the 2014 referendum who were brought in on the basis of either anti-austerity type radical politics that kind of prevailed in a soft way around 2014, or else they were brought on board by a sort of professionalised left liberalism of the type that Sturgeon is associated with. It's this same membership, 48% of them, who have chosen this candidate that is both right-wing economically and on cultural issues as well. And I don't think it's because they share Kate Forbes's ideological outlook, which is very similar to people such as Brian Souter and so on. I think it's a vote of massive discontent with the way that things are going. Hamza, I think, will take a slightly different approach with the left. Despite his background, he'll try and present himself as a friend of the left and all this sorts of stuff. Nicola Sturgeon, remember, when she came in, was all about trying to brutalise and destroy the left-wing infrastructure that had been built up around the independence movement and spent a lot of time courting the right wing of the party including such wee free figures as Ian Blackford and trying to weaken the role of the left in the party. I think Humza will try and court the left in order to hold off and fend off what he sees as challenges to his authority because he will see his authority as weak. And thus, I think many of us might see that Humza reaches out a hand of some type of friendship. The danger in all that, I think, is that the fact that that hand is on offer and that you are sort of invited towards the establishment will end up in a situation where large parts of the left, even more than they have done in recent years, end up hitching themselves to a project that is in decline and going nowhere and has no ideas and is not going to suddenly discover its sense of purpose overnight or even, I think, in the whole period that Humza's in office. I think that we have to hold Humza to his word He's said in this election that he's a socialist. That means that you will be supporting all the strikes that are taking place over the next few months by Scottish workers. It means that you're going to 
resist any austerity measures. And it means that you are going to start exploring radical policies that could transform elements of Scottish society that are within the purview of Holyrood. The left in society needs to immediately assert pressure in a way that holds Hamza Youssef to account based on the campaign that he has run. I'm interested in how you think this is going to play out. Jonathan, there's a UK general election in a year and a half. Labour feel like they can challenge for a number of seats in Scotland for the first time in many years. How do you think this is going to play out? So I think it's probably worth saying, just as a kind of bit of pretext to that to this answer, that Kate Forbes, I think, will be pretty loyal, actually, to the party. And I think it's worth making that point because it's true to say that, that these deep divisions exist and I think they will continue to, to expand. But at the same time, I think that Kate Forbes is an establishment politician. She understands the need to maintain good order uh, in the Scottish government. And I don't think that she is a firebrand who will lead a kind of dissident insurgency within the SNP in opposition to Hamza. So I think she will be perfectly loyal. As Reagan is, is kind of interesting in this sense because she was far more the insurgent candidate in many ways. What I do think is interesting about that, just because it is instructive about the next general election, is that, of course, she's an experienced and, you know, she made a number of, of kind of full paths throughout the campaign and so on. But if you're looking for someone that offered, you know, a full-blooded pro-independence manifesto, then here it was. Here was someone saying, we want a Scottish currency within months of being independent. We want every election to essentially be a mechanism that brings the UK government to the table for immediate negotiations on independence. Ironically, she in some ways continued the idea of a de facto referendum, just using different words. What's critical about the coming election is that that idea, the idea of a de facto referendum, has gone into retreat. Now, what was important about that idea was that it provided a strong nationalist frame within the context of an election in which we're looking at the Tories being removed from office. So there's already going to be a squeeze on the SNP because people will vote Labour if they don't see independence as being an option purely to get rid of the Tories. And I think that's going to be a real dynamic in the coming general election. If you look back to 2017, when the SNP lost a variety of seats, including high-profile figures, people like Angus Robertson, despite the fact that this was post-Brexit, it was partly because they didn't offer a strong pro-independence angle within the election. They instead resorted to being more a sort of stop-Brexit party. So what will be interesting to see in terms of Hamza Yusuf, how does he position the SNP in this election with a credible pro-independence perspective? And it seems to me that that underlying problem is really, really difficult for him to overcome. And I just end by saying this, that Nicola Sturgeon's misadventure into the Supreme Court has meant that the, the holding pattern that's been so useful for the SNP, the idea of a, an imminent referendum, a referendum's just around the corner and so on, that's been removed from Hamza Yusuf's armory. And he won't be able to make that claim with any seriousness. Uh, whereas Nicola Sturgeon had the luxury of being able to do that. She was able to say, vote for us and it'll be a referendum that we have. And she was able to do that, spin that out over a period of nine years. Hamza doesn't have that. He doesn't have that ability to, to deploy that kind of tool. And as a result, I think the SNP are in for a very difficult general election. James? Yeah, I mean, take away independence and what's left. 
I think as Jonathan put it, what you have is a party that has had more power than anyone could possibly hope for, and yet has delivered so little with that power beyond the fact that they have continued to get re-elected, which is their main claim. And they seem to think that it's their policies and their characteristics as individuals and so on that has delivered that. But in truth, I think the fact that they have continued to be re-elected is just symptomatic of the fact that there is so little political choice in contemporary capitalism. You have various shades of centrism that dominates in Scotland, centrist liberalism. What distinguishes them is the promise around independence. But you take away the question of independence, and it does raise a big dilemma as to what the SNP is actually there to do. All they are then is a party that has been governing the country for a large number of years and presiding over decline. Barring the fact that they have some huge crisis around the Murrell family and the investigations around that, and the SNP would go then into some sort of immediately rapid decline, the more likely scenario is just a sort of like slow death of the project of independence and of the electoral hegemony of the SNP, which may well take place over a number of years. I'm no longer convinced that further crises of the British state, whether economic or anything else, will ever be enough to reverse that unless there is some sort of radical break that I can't really foresee coming in the current period, given the current alignment of forces in Scotland. And again, it's something that we've talked about before, but does that mean that there is a case for rethinking the orientation of the political left in Scotland? One thing I just slightly disagree with you on, Pete, like, and I don't disagree with it directly, but something I think we need to nuance a little bit. I think trying to hold Humza to account does come with risks, right? It comes with the risk of trying to take these people seriously when we've spent six years, broadly speaking, waiting on their promises and saying we need to hold them to account on independence and all this sorts of stuff. Sometimes we just need to appreciate that they're very much a party like any other. We would hold them to account in all the same ways that we would hold Labour, Lib Dems, or anyone else to account, quite frankly. But ultimately, they are much of a muchness with the rest of the political establishment. And we maybe need to have a more fundamental rethink about political mm -hmm. representation in this country. The left has spent too long orbiting the SNP. And our big strategic priority, whether it involves independence or not, surely needs to be to break the shackles of that process and reassert the independence and autonomy of socialism, which, you know, comes and claims to stand for. I think you make a very fair point, James. I do. But I do think Hums is slightly different in one respect, which is that he is calling himself a socialist. I don't think Hums is agenda is going to differ substantially from that of Keir Starmer's. But Keir Starmer would never describe himself as a socialist if, for example, you're talking about the trade unions in Scotland who are going to be in negotiations with the Scottish government. For them, it offers a tactical point of leverage, potentially. But I agree with your point that we've attempted to orbit the SNP for too long. I say we in the broadest sense. The left has been in orbit of the SNP around the independence question. And I do think that we need to break from that and develop a far more autonomous and independent left. Want more like this? 
Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascott. On the question of independence, though, is it the case that in some respects we've been unfair to the SNP and to the SNP leadership? Have they not been in something of an impossible situation? That is, they have a membership and a movement who are desperate for another referendum and are desperate to win that referendum. But there are structures within politics that make that really difficult. We've talked about this before. There is no extra legal strategy in the form of a Catalan approach that can plausibly be deployed in Scotland. That means you need a legal referendum which requires sanction from the British government. It requires Westminster to grant a Section 30 order. The Tories will never grant that. They've said that. Here, Starmer, in order to look tough, will never grant that. He has to deflect away from the idea that Labour will be in the SNP's pocket. And therefore, there's very little potential to negotiate with any of the main Westminster parties over the prospect of a second independence referendum. Really, the window of opportunity that existed was when Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party. He said, at least, that he had an ideological disposition towards the notion that nations should have the right of self-determination, and therefore he would have countenanced it. And certainly, when the polling figures looked like the Labour Party could win, but not a majority government, at that point, the SNP had enough leverage to say that the Labour Party will support a Labour administration on the grounds that you grant a second referendum. It looks like Starmer is going to win the next general election in a year and a half, That puts the prospects of any negotiation over another referendum off by a number of years. Really what we're talking about is an opportunity that comes along very rarely, and there's going to be very few opportunities, if any, to ever force that onto the table. Why should we have any expectation that there's anything an SNP leader could do to change that situation? Yeah, so that that does point to the kind of structural problems which exist around Scottish nationalism today. Now, how do you break through those? You would need to have not just, you know, 55% of the population. You would need to have an overwhelming majority. They would need to be mobilised. They would need to be in a position in which they were demanding a referendum from a position of strength. That would involve all kinds of actions, including direct action, peaceful and non-violent civil disobedience. All of these things would be required and more in order to to rest a referendum. And then once you'd won a referendum, you then have to have that movement maintain itself in order that it could deliver some kind of meaningful independence for Scotland, i.e. one in which the Bank of England doesn't govern monetary policy and one in which um, the Scottish Parliament is a genuinely powerful parliament with full abilities to to make interventions, including on foreign policy and all the rest of it. Now, we don't have those ingredients, but where I think the SNP leadership have to be fully criticised is that if you look over the last nine years or so, if you look at Sturgeon's reign, there hasn't been even a campaign for independence. No infrastructure has been set up around it. There hasn't been a constitutional convention. The prospectus that 
was created, was created in a half-baked way, contradictory on its own terms. So key arguments about currency that you would have to deploy and win haven't been put forward in a way that makes any sense and which shifts the dial on that kind of question. We've seen a massive crisis of the British state with Brexit and other related issues, and yet the SNP and the SNP leadership failed to make any real inroads when it came to making the case for independence. What they did do in kind of theatrical sort of pantomime ways is pose themselves as an alternative to the likes of Jacob Rees Mogg and so on. But they didn't actually make the case for independence in and of itself. And so they squandered those opportunities to start to build a majority in society. And they also, for reasons which I can't work out, conducted a, a strategy through the Supreme Court, which was always going to end in disaster and hand a victory to the British state. So the result of all of that put in combination is, I think, damning of the outgoing SNP leadership. And I think it's created very weak foundations for Hamza Yusuf to build on, even if he wanted to, which he doesn't, because he is a continuity of that strategy. And so, yes, there are structural barriers, but then you have to ask the question, how are these likely to be overcome? And they're not going to be overcome either by Nicola Sturgeon, obviously, uh, and the way she approached the question. And similarly, they're not going to be overcome by Hamza Yusuf. I'll just also say in relation to that, Pete, that I think we're going to see a churn of SNP leaders. I agree with James's point that Hamza might not be there for all that long, certainly not for, for nine years in the way that Nicola Sturgeon was. We're going to see this churn of leaders, partly because these contradictions need to find some kind of outlet, some kind of political expression, and they're not going to find it easily through any leader that advises the same policy that has been advised over the last decade and certainly since 2016 and the Brexit referendum and the openings that that brought about. So I think lots of problems exist and have been building up within the party, within the wider movement, and that that's led to fragmentation. I don't think that if you're thinking about strategic priorities, that independence from the point of view of, of a socialist perspective is necessarily going to be rebuilt through the tried and tested ways that we did develop in 2014. I think you're going to need wholly different forms of organisation and wholly different approach and orientation on the national question in order to rebuild the kind of class forces that are necessary to overcome the power of the British state. And that's a long-term project now. Don't be under any illusions. That's not going to happen over the next five years. That's going to be a long-term project. And Hamza will be one of many SNP leaders along the way. Just one point though, Shafi. I mean, I entirely agree with what you just said. But also, like, there's something of a misconception sometimes that people who share our point of view are pretending that getting independence is easy, right? If you look back at uh, Shafi's weekly newsletter, if you go and read my book, uh, I'm not trying to punt my book or Shafi's newsletter, but just as examples, right? None of these things are saying that it's easy. In fact, the only people that are saying that it's easy are Nicola Sturgeon and her cohort. We are the people that are emphasising that there are difficult structural barriers and therefore it will require something more than the standard mechanisms of parliamentary democracies. By contrast, Nicola Sturgeon has been selling the illusion for many years that it's fundamentally a simple process of voting. No matter how many times that has been refuted and all these different mandates have failed, it's taken until the last months that they've tried to pursue some other type of strategy which, as Shafi said, was entirely misconceived as well in its whole operation. It's not ourselves, anyone at Contour, anyone that shares our analytical point of view, 
that has been deluding people about the easiness of this overall project. It is the whole project of Stodgenism to pretend that these things are easy and thus to keep the movement in a permanent state of mobilization, largely for electoral and fundraising purposes. So I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think there are really hard barriers, and as Shafi says, it would take something significant in order to overcome those, something far beyond what they have been willing to contemplate. As you say, I think, you know, a window perhaps for that did emerge because we had a very unique crisis of the British state surrounding Brexit. But I think that has now closed. The political alignment of forces that were there aren't there. And in large part, that's due to Nicola Sturgeon squandering the opportunities that were presented by the leftward movement of the Labour Party. But because she was so hostile to that and so determined, to sign up with affluent metropolitan liberals who were endorsing her on the question of Brexit and trying to suck up to the type of respectability that that type of cohort metropolitan London elites and so on would bring to her. These are specific strategic flaws and character feelings, I think, that you can hold at the door of Nicola Sturgeon personally. But nobody is pretending it's easy. Nobody is pretending... It will be easy, certainly, anymore. Now that Hums is there, I suspect they're going to have to roll back on a lot of stuff, and you wonder how that's going to impact on their electoral fortunes. My prediction is that without independence as an immediate possibility, we might go back to a similar dynamic to the one we saw between 2007 and 2011, That is to say, at the next general election, I can very much see a big swing back to Labour under conditions in which Keir Starmer could be elected and the Tories could be kicked out. But even the Labour Party are saying that they think that they will be very competitive in at least 20 seats. But that's not a majority of seats. No. But even if a large number of people do vote Labour at the next general election, I think a plurality will still go back and vote SNP at the following Hollywood election. But the difference is the 2007 to 2011 SNP administration was probably the most successful period of SNP governance that we've had before they ever got a majority in the parliament. I mean, look at the policy successes that they had in the first four years compared to the more than a decade following that. At first, they halted PPI and PPP, that is private finance initiatives and private public partnerships. They blocked student fees from being implemented in Scotland. They provided free school meals for all children. They they reformed prescriptions so that people wouldn't be charged for prescription charges anymore. Symbolically, they continued to oppose the Iraq war and occupation. I mean, this is all good politics. This is good policy. Much of it, incidentally, taken from the Scottish Socialist Party manifesto back then, but that's besides the point. And look, I dislike Salmond. I think his personal conduct has been absolutely disgraceful. And he was an advocate of the banking sector and finance capital. But during that period, he led a cabinet full of old battle-hardened colleagues as a minority administration, and he was able to pass meaningful legislation. Say what you like about him, but he was a very skilled politician in the bourgeois sense of the word. The big difference is that today, the leadership of the SNP is in the hands of Hamza Youssef, and the only improvement is that maybe if they can't come to a deal, Ross Greer and Lorna Slater won't be part of the government. Um, 
you, I, you, you put it right. You say that you know when they came in as insurgents after two thousand and seven, it was hardened by a long period in opposition. They've now lost all their senior cadre of that era from the party leadership and are going to have to rebuild with people who have grown flabby. I mean, people who have never experienced opposition and have just joined the party in and around a time where they are expectant of power and don't know how to fight for it. So that is part of the political characteristics of the new ruling group. And I think it will be a weakness and a limitation on them. But also, like, Salmond was coming up against, you know, having been in opposition, and that gives you the advantage of you've got a number of ideas that you want to implement, and the government previously is associated with a number of unpopular policies that you could just junk. By contrast, if you're in government, junking those unpopular policies suggests why the hell did you implement them in the first place, right? So it's actually hard that you have all this baggage of being in power too long. So I don't expect we will see any really radical moves on behalf of Hamza. I really don't care anymore about whether you consider him to be a mild move to the left or anything like that in relation to Nicola Sturgeon. Um, And Hamza, I think, you know, is going to be a step backwards in relation to independence because he's a weaker leader and because he has no plan beyond some sort of crap, quite frankly, about building a grassroots movement. Whenever I hear anyone say the words grassroots nowadays, I know that whatever is being proposed will be the very opposite. Um, It's uh, one of these real Orwellisms of the current period.